we're going to continue our series on salvation. And today we're really at the heart of salvation as we look at justification, the idea that God declares sinners righteous. I want to pray. Let's, let's ask God for help. Lord, we thank you that we can spend time looking at your word and we thank you that through it you speak to us. Help us to understand how good this passage of scripture is, not just because it's interesting literature but because it's true and it tells us of how we as sinners can be right with you, how we can be declared innocent despite the fact that we're not. Help us to grasp it today and help us to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where they change the topic of conversation mid-conversation, but they give you no indication that they've changed the topic of conversation? Or is this just only something that happens in my household, right? Like, so you think you're talking about soccer training for the kids, and suddenly you're wondering why soccer training involves baking, Like, are we having halftime cake now instead of oranges? Is there a fundraiser? Did the coach of the under-sevens ban the kids from eating cake to improve their performance? I I sometimes think for many people in our culture, talking about Jesus' death and our salvation or eternal life is a bit like that. I mean, think about it from the perspective of someone who is unfamiliar with Christianity. For so many of us, we just know Jesus died for my sins. We get what that means. But if you've never heard of Christianity before, what we're saying is that a Jewish carpenter died 2,000 years ago and that sort of fixes everything and now we can live forever. There's a bit of a gap there, isn't there? I mean, how do we get there? What does it have to do with me? For such a long time, like I grew up going to, to church, for such a long time I could tell you that Jesus died for my sins, but I had no idea how Jesus' death actually fixed my sin at all. I just knew that statement, but I didn't know how it worked. Today we're looking at this, this doctrine called justification. Justification is all about how on earth can a holy God declare a sinner to be righteous? How can a holy God, who is good and just, look at a sinner and say, innocent? This question is at the heart of the story of the Bible. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I really want to encourage you to think through this question if you're not a Christian. How could I stand before God with my moral track record and be declared innocent? How could I stand before God and not be condemned? Uh, Many of us in the room are Christians. Many of us will have heard this before, and there's a danger here today that you go, yeah, 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 Jesus died on the cross of my sins, heard this before, cool, cool, I can now switch off. I know all this. But I want to challenge you, if you're a Christian, as you hear this, are you living it out? If not, that may indicate that you don't know this doctrine as well as you think you do. If you're not living out what it means to be justified by God's grace, to be declared righteous by God's grace, then maybe you shouldn't be slow, slow to think that you don't need to hear this. I still remember as a young man hearing John Chapman at a Ketuba convention tell me that if I get sick of hearing the gospel, I need to repent. And so Christians, this is for us. So so here's the plan for this morning. 
I want to talk briefly about justification in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the, the, the Christians in Rome, didn't suddenly just pull out this idea from nowhere. He's got a whole back catalogue of history, of God's relationship to his people that help him explain and help us understand what Jesus is actually doing. So we're going to look quickly at justification in the Old Testament. And then we're going to work our way through that passage that Darren read for us, Romans 3, starting at verse 21. And and here are the, the categories I want us to be thinking of. We need to think through what Paul has to say about the problems of our sin and a holy God, our useless attempts to get right with God, how a holy God can declare a sinner righteous and, and what it means for our lives. Put simply, we need to look at the problem that all humans have, we need to look at God's solution, and then we need to look at life in light of God's solution. So let's start with the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, it starts with God creating a world with humans in perfect relationship to him. And those humans rebel against God and they get kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence, and they can't get back And there are two big glimpses in the Old Testament that help us understand what God's plan is to get us back into the garden, how God is going to take these guilty sinners and bring them back into his presence. Now, the first one is what I read at the start of the service from Genesis 15. God makes these promises to a childless 75-year-old man that he's going to have kids. And a number of years pass and this man starts to doubt Fair enough. His wife's 10 years younger than him. I'd have some doubts too. And God in Genesis chapter 15 reaffirms his promises to this guy Abram. And we're told in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it or credited it to him as righteousness. In Romans 4, in the very next chapter after our passage, Paul will pick up this idea and say, that Abram is declared righteous by faith. That is, how is anyone declared innocent? Paul says from the very start with Abram, it's faith, and now it's faith, faith in what God has done. But perhaps the bigger glimpse of what is to come in Christ is the sacrificial system. I'm doing a Bible reading plan at the moment, and I'm midway through Leviticus And there are a whole lot of descriptions of particular sacrifices and at times you're kind of like, okay, the lobe of the liver, the fat, burn the fat, don't eat the fat, right? You're reading through all these requirements for sacrifice. But when you get to chapter 16, I think it is of Leviticus, you have the heart of the sacrificial system. It's what the Jews call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the priests would set aside two goats, And the first goat they would sacrifice, they would kill, and they would take the blood of the goat and they would sprinkle it on things, including sprinkling it on the people, which is like, oh, I mean, if I got up here and started sprinkling blood on you, I wouldn't be long in the job, right? That'd be game over. But the idea is that this goat, this innocent animal, dies in the place of the people. It dies as a substitute And then goat number two gets blood from goat number one on it and it's sent out into the wilderness. It's where we get the idea of a scapegoat. The goat escapes. And it's this this picture of God taking sin away. And so you have this consistent practice in Israel where they make 
animal sacrifices in order that they might be right with God. You see, the big problem for the Israelites is how can a holy God, how can a holy God dwell amongst an unholy people and not consume them, not, not kill them? And the sacrificial system, it's bloody and it's shocking. You could conclude that God is therefore barbaric or you could conclude that sin is more awful than you thought that sin leads to death. It's a very visual picture of sin leading to death. But the idea at the heart of justification is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that there is a penalty that must be paid, that a substitute dies in the place of the guilty party, the Innocent dies in the place of a guilty party and in doing so makes atonement. Atonement means to make right, to make right what's wrong. And so in this sacrificial system, the atonement is the sacrifice. The animal bears the penalty of the sinner to atone for their sin in the place of the sinner. And in the Old Testament, when sacrifice is made, God says, I will forgive your sin. Here's the problem, though, with the sacrificial system. It never ends. Year after year after year, you make your sacrifices consistently. Sin is never fully done away with. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of animal sacrifice never really actually dealt with sin. It was just a shadow to point forward to Christ. So as we come to Romans, this this Old Testament Background's really important. Without it, it, it doesn't make sense. Without understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system or God's declaration that Abram was righteous, you might be mistaken and you might start to think, gosh, just Jesus just shows up out of nowhere and dies and everyone goes, it's all good now. But there's this whole system that is meant to point us forward to Christ. Now, Romans 3, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans is a book of a couple of really big arguments. And the first argument that takes place in the book has been started since halfway through chapter 1. And so in chapter 1, we have this idea that God is rightly wrathful against sin and wickedness. Now, we talked about this in the last few weeks. God's wrath is not where he loses the plot and does his nana. He's not a dad who's finally lost patience and spews forth anger throughout the world. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. And the sin that Paul is saying we are all culpable of is that we humans, we worship created things rather than the creator. He says that all are guilty. There's a lot of talk of Jew and Gentile in the book of Romans simply because God's chosen people in the Old Testament were the Jews. And after Christ, Gentiles in particular start to come into the church. And you've got this new community made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says both are guilty. There's no single human who is righteous. If you look at the the section just before our passage, verse 10, no one is righteous, not, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Imagine that on your school report. Pretty bleak. And before we get to justification, what God does to declare sin is righteous, we have to acknowledge the problem. 
the problem that requires God to act. And it's a twofold problem, and you can't get to the solution before you admit the problem. It's like in Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to admit that you're an alcoholic before any healing can take place. Or like the bloke who just refuses to go to the doctor and keeps saying she'll be right. He needs to admit that there's a problem. Like the knight in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, who has limbs chopped off, legs. He says, it's just a flesh wound. It's not a flesh wound. You're dying. And here's the first problem. We've all sinned. We're not righteous. We deserve judgment. We are born that way and we choose it. It's actually what it means to be human, imperfect, sinful. No one here can claim to be perfectly morally pure. Not even if we just started from the moment we woke up. I doubt any of us got to church clean. And the challenge is many people don't see this as a big problem. They think, yeah, sure, I make mistakes, but that's, that's life. I'm a pretty good person. I, I try to be good. Surely that's going to be enough for God. But that ignores the second problem. It's not just that we're sinners, that we aren't morally pure or righteous. It's also that God is holy and just. I mean, imagine for a second, if you will, some of the worst injustices that have happened out there in the world and also have happened in your life. Now imagine that God doesn't care and won't call them to account. Is that a world we want to live in? I still remember sitting in Year 8 Science. Our teacher had gone on maternity leave, first lesson with Mr Coombs. Jeffrey Dyer says something atrocious to another girl named Adelaide. And uh, the teacher looks at Jeffrey, and Jeffrey immediately turns and goes, James! Jeffrey was quick. This teacher just roasted me, and I still remember it. This minute, this 30 seconds in Year 8 Science, the injustice of it stings. And yet in Year 9 Science... We had a quiz that involved the winning of a Mars bar and I cheated and won the Mars bar. <laughs> and the teacher, <laughs> the teacher who is married to an Anglican minister, this is terrible, at the end of the lesson she, called, she pulled me forward she said, James, did you cheat? And I said, no. <laughs> and I went and ate the Mars bar and it was delicious. <laughs> You see, in year eight, I wanted justice. In year nine, I just wanted mercy and escape. Isn't that true of all of us? We actually don't have a problem with a God who would call people to justice. We don't have a problem with God fixing justice out there in the world, but we do have a problem with a God who might dare to call us to account. You see, the great problem of the universe is my sin plus a holy God equals disaster for me. If God is to be just, he must deal with all sin and evil. He, he needs to deal with sin and evil that's both out there in the world and the injustices of the world. But if he's going to do that, he also has to deal with it in me. He can't just ignore sin. He's not a good God if he ignores sin. It must be dealt with. You don't want to live in an eternal place with a God who doesn't care about evil. You see, we compare ourselves to people and that makes it easy to feel good about yourself, doesn't it? Because you just pick someone who you know is worse than you at stuff. And so you feel pretty good. 
But if you compare yourself to a holy God, I mean, come up short every time. It's not even that you, you it's not even that you come up short. You're not even on the graph. You're not even close. We've all ignored God. We've all chosen self. We've made created things ultimate, which is in Paul's thinking to say to God, you're not God. You can't satisfy me. You don't deserve my worship. Your created stuff does. It's to say to God, you're not good. Those things are. They're better than you. Which means sin is not just missing some imaginary mark. It's actually a personal offence to the holy God. We've sinned against others and we've sinned against him, our maker, the most pure and glorious being in the universe. And a holy God cannot ignore our sin. If he did, he wouldn't be good. There's the problem. Our sin and a holy God equals disaster. Now, the default mode of the human heart is to try and fix it, to earn back what was lost. When I was a kid, about the same time I was probably lying to my science teacher, when my parents were out, I would play tennis in our garage. We had a a brick wall about that wide, and I'd just play tennis against it. Whack, whack, whack. My parents had told me not to, but, you know, they weren't there, so I, I just kept going. And... And one day I was, I was getting some pretty good heat in my backhand and it was, it was working really well and then all of a sudden one went astray. And, of course, next to that brick wall about that wide, just there, was a window <laughs> and the ball went through and I freaked out. And so I went inside and I found this tin. Actually, I don't think I was in year nine. I think it was about in year six. And I found this tin and it was, it was my bank <laughs> and there was one $5 note a few golden coins and a whole lot of shrapnel. And I poured it out on the table and I started counting. And I, my parents came home and uh, they found me sitting at the table crying my little eyes out with my $5 note and my piles of coin. And you know when you're a kid and you're, you're in trouble, like my kids do this now and they know they've done something wrong in there and you're like, I'll fix it, I'll fix it, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But here's the problem, there's no fixing sin for you or I. Look at verse 20 of Romans chapter 3. It says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's what he's saying. You can't get right with God by following the rules. You just can't. He's not saying following the rules is bad, but he's saying if you think that the following of the rules will get you right with God, you're misunderstanding the point. It's not Jewish laws that fix things, nor is it church attendance or giving money away. That doesn't fix the problem with God as if he needs our attendance or our money. Why? Well, later he's going to say that law reveals sin. It doesn't save from sin. So you can't get right with God by being good. You can't get right with God by attending church or reading your Bible or praying enough. God doesn't look at the good things that you do and go, all right, if you just get to level eight, then we're sweet. That's not how it works. So here's our problem. We're sinners and God is holy. That leads to disaster and we can't fix it. There's a German monk, Martin Luther. He he sort of started the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. And 
as a monk, a Catholic Augustinian monk, he knew that God was holy and he knew that he was a sinner. And so he hated God, which is strange for a monk. You wouldn't think that a monk would hate God, but he hated God because here's what he concluded. If God is righteous and holy and I'm a sinner, this God can only damn me. And so he worked his little heart off. He scrubbed floors and he did penance and it didn't fix the problem. But something changed in Luther's life when he read Romans. He described this passage, chapter 3, as the very centre of the Bible because he understood that being good didn't fix the problem. And so have a look with me. Let's make sense of this passage from verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God is God's declaration of righteousness, that God would declare people righteous apart from the law but through faith in Jesus. Verse 23 tells us the problem from the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is often described, it it usually means his splendour, his majesty. Glory actually means weight. He's a big deal. He's heavy. (laughs) But here Paul is using it to talk of God's perfection. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of his perfection and holiness. And verse 24, here's the answer. We are justified, that is declared righteous, declared innocent by grace. How can God do this? He, He declares us righteous by grace. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. It's his kindness. It's a free gift. It's not earned. By definition, you cannot earn grace. It's not works. It's a gift. Now, how can a holy God do this? If he really cares about sin, how can he declare me innocent when I'm still a sinner? Have a look with me. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're actually going to look at redemption next week. Redemption is where you pay a price to set someone free. But the means of redemption are in verse 25. And my Bible uses a big word, so bear with me. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, that's a big word. We've actually, the choir sung of it. It's not often that you hear a song with propitiation in it. But remember the Day of Atonement, the two goats? The first goat is sacrificed and it's like God pours his wrath out on that goat and his wrath is turned aside. That's propitiation. Jesus is the first goat. God pours out his wrath on Christ instead of on me. Jesus is also the second goat. Through Christ our sin is taken away. And it has to be received by faith if it's grace. You can't earn a gift It's not a gift. It's wages. And so if we're going to be declared righteous by grace, it has to be received by faith. Faith is simply saying, help. I can't save me. I need Jesus. And the the second half of verse 25, it says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's acknowledging a problem that many people ask. What is God doing in the world? Why isn't he making it right? 
If he really cares about justice, why isn't he stepping in? Why isn't he dealing with the mess out there and in here? And the answer that Paul says is that God's passed over sins in the past. He's waited in order that Christ would become the propitiation, the the sacrifice that turns aside his wrath, so that God is just, that is, he deals with sin and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He deals with sin and at the same time he shows mercy to sinners. He sets sinners, he declares them righteous. So let's sum up. How can a sinner be declared right? With God, it's not by works of the law, it's by God's grace. It's by Christ's death, who dies as a sacrifice that turns aside God's wrath. To be received by faith means that on the cross, Christ took the penalty for every sin that you and I have ever done. The innocent Son of God willingly took it. He dies in our place as a substitute. He's the innocent one who bears the wrath of God for the guilt of the world so that guilty ones like me, like you, might be declared innocent, so that sin is dealt with. God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. It's on full display and it's awful. But sinners go free. That the cross is the place where justice and mercy kiss. And all of its gift, it's received by faith, not by works. It's his life for yours. The innocent dies in the place of the guilty so that the guilty might be in the place of the innocent. We're guilty. We deserve condemnation, but for all who trust in Jesus' death, God declares them righteous. So we've looked at the problem. We've looked at the solution, how, how God declares sin as righteous. Let's think about what does this look like in life. If you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you long for justice? Do you long for God to make all that's wrong in the world right? And if you do, a question that you need to consider is what would make you feel confident to stand before him with the wrongness in your life and heart? And so if you're not a Christian, I I want to encourage you to hear clearly. We're so glad you're here. None of us get right with God by our doing. None of us get right with God by just being really good and moral. You can't earn it. You can't earn a declaration of righteousness. It's only grace. By definition, it's a gift. And what Paul wants these Romans to do and us to do, what God wants us to do is admit the problem, to see our sin and his holiness and to see the offer of grace and to marvel at that, that a God would offer grace, to trust Jesus' death as your substitute. And the Bible says that all who do that, who admit the problem, admit their sin and trust in Jesus, God declares you innocent. It doesn't mean that the consequences of sin that play out in your life suddenly disappear, but it means that you can stand before him with confidence knowing that Christ has paid your penalty in full, that your debt is paid. And this changes everything. This response, repentance and faith, it's not just the start of the Christian life, it's how you continue. And so I want to finish with three ways this should shape life, this idea that we're justified by God's grace. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is how it's supposed to shape our life. The first one is it should humble us. Look at verse 27 with me of chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? I think he's talking about Jewish boasting. It is excluded by what kind of law? A law of works? No, but the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. Here's the point. None of us have got anything to brag about. We're all saved through faith. And we Christians, we get good at being good, don't we? We get real good at being good. We forget to repent. We live life as if we have nothing to say sorry for. And over time, the temptation for all Christians is to think that their righteousness is earned by effort or by right. We need to repent of that. Think about it. If there was some other way that God could save sinners, wouldn't he do that? Wouldn't Jesus have chosen an easier option than the cross and bearing the wrath of God? We've all sinned and fallen short. We didn't dust ourselves off. We didn't pick ourselves up and suddenly get ourselves together so much so that God saved us. No, it was all Christ. God stepped in. And we Christians have a tendency, rather than being humble, of being proud, especially if you've been a Christian for a while. Pride happens when we look down on others, when we judge and condemn, we lift ourselves up, we imagine others as all evil and us as all good, we demonise people. May our only boast be Christ. I mean, what gives you confidence that you're right with God, Christian? Is it your prayer life? Is it your dedication to your Bible reading? Is it your charitable giving or your good driving, your great parenting, your work ethic? None of it saves. And when we act like it does, we mock the cross. It's evil. And so let the reminder that God declares people righteous as a gift humble you. Put your confidence in Christ and let it free you to repent. When was the last time you really asked God for forgiveness? But don't let it just help you to repent to God. Let it help you to repent to others. When was the last time you really owned your sin in your relationships or in the workplace? When was the last time that you were 20% wrong and they were 80% wrong, but you owned the 20% first? See, when you get that you've fallen short and can't save yourself, swallowing your pride comes more naturally because you realise that pride is both insane and deadly. And so are there people that you need to apologise to? Christians, we should be the first in the world, first in the family, first in the workplace, first everywhere to admit our wrong and apologise in every relationship. Because being justified by God's grace should make us humble. That's the first thing it should do. The second thing is it should mean that we live a life without condemnation. Many of you will know this verse, Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder what do you do when you feel guilty, when you've sinned and you feel guilty? Do you spiral into despair? Do you harden your heart and minimise your sin? Those are the two dangers. One, that we run from God and we hide like Adam and Eve, we put fig leaves over our sin and we say, what, 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 no big deal. The other one is we just pretend it doesn't matter. We treat God's grace as cheap. Ah, he'll forgive me. No biggie. And both distort justification. You can't look at the cross and think sin is no big deal. And when you sin, remember the cross. It's serious. Grieve and repent and run to him for more grace. Some of us in this room are prone to punish ourselves. We punish ourselves when we sin. We rob ourselves of relationship with God. We say, I don't deserve it. And you're right, you don't. But that doesn't mean that you don't get to enjoy it. 
Rather than running from God, we're called to run to him. We say that we're worthless and useless. And we deny the cross. The cross says you matter. You're worth the son of God. We tell ourselves we're damned as if Christ is only for the good sinners. Some of us, when things go wrong, we assume that God is punishing us and we forget that God has already punished Christ in our place. He's not punishing us. So if you're a Christian justified by faith, Christ is punished for you. There's no more condemnation. He bore our penalty in full. And so for those of you who have tender consciences, who are quick to get down on yourself, I want to encourage you, preach the truth of the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that Christ died in your place, that God has declared you righteous through faith in him and walk in the freedom from condemnation. So this humbles us. It reminds us there's no more condemnation. Here's the last one. This, is, this reality that we are justified by faith should lead to grace-empowered obedience. Some of us get good at being good because we're naturally disciplined people. We're just good at being good. Some of us do good out of duty to be good. And some of us do good in order that God will owe us. We'd never say it like that. We'd never say, I'll do this thing for you, God, but you better come through on those other three things that I've been asking you about. We would never say it like that. But in our heart, when we don't get those things, we go, look at what I did for you, God. Why? You see, we sometimes do good in order that God will love us or accept us. Christians aren't just people who only repent of doing wrong. Christians are people who repent of the reasons they do good things. Because sometimes those reasons are sinful. We do good and think God owes us, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If you're always angry and bitter that no one is good enough, or if you're bitter at God for the life you have despite all your hard work, then maybe you've forgotten the heart of the Christian faith. It's justification by grace. See, when you understand the cross, that God declares sin as righteous because of his mercy and his goodness, it transforms why you obey. You start to serve because you've been served in the most glorious of ways. You start to give because you've been given the infinitely valuable son of God. You start to love because God loved you at greatest cost to himself. You you start to grow in kindness and patience because you recognise that God is far more kind towards you and far more patient with you than you ever have to be towards anyone else. And you start to become gentle with other people because you realise that if God did treat you as you deserve, it would not be very gentle, and yet he's gentle. Is that you, Christian? Maybe the reason we judge and complain and lack patience is because we are so quick to forget how God has declared us righteous. We are so quick to forget how God has treated us and let that transform us so that we would treat others in the same way. Obedience becomes the obvious and joyous response to grace. It takes a lifetime of work, but it starts with justification. And so people declared righteous, they humble themselves, they repent gladly, walking in the freedom from condemnation, and they obey with joy. 
Our only hope of standing before God on that last day being declared righteous is not our law-keeping or goodness, is it? It's just grace. It's his mercy and kindness. It's, it's that Christ took the penalty for our sin as our substitute on the cross. And we've already sung it, haven't we? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. We've sung of in my place, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. His robes for mine, the choir sung. He takes our filthy, sinful robes and gives us his pure, clean, righteous ones. We're going to finish with a hymn. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gates, is that it? That all may come in. Praise the Lord.